this is Captain Lee, and you're listening to the Andertons Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Anderson's TV. And today, my very special guest is none other than Kenny Wayne Shepherd, all the way from his new house. Uh, we were just talking about, uh, just moved in a little while ago and hasn't even hung his paintings up and stuff. But Kenny, thank you so much for joining us. Um, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good, actually. Uh, got all the kids off uh, to school, and so the house is nice and quiet and hopefully the dog won't come wandering in here but uh so far so good everything's pretty nice over here oh well, we know we, we like dogs dogs is it's always a guaranteed extra ten thousand views in a video so if the dog wants to make an entrance <laughs> it's always good it's always good well look we're going to talk about your new fender signature guitar at some point in this interview which is awesome and i'm really excited about that but let's talk about you know i i can honestly tell you i remember you kind of exploding onto the scene back in the early 90s. Um, uh, Blue on Black, one of the coolest tunes. I still, you know, you still hear that on the radio now. It's, it's, a, it's a great tune. Um, and your guitar playing style has obviously, you know, captured the imagination of millions of fans. But let, let's talk about, you know, growing up and what it was about the, the, the musicians that you heard. And I guess in particular, the influence someone like Stevie Ray had on you that um, developed you as a musician? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm from Louisiana, so uh, I'm from the South, which is the birthplace of the blues. And so, I mean, I grew up, but not just blues music. Like, there's so many different genres that have come out of that area, you know, not just Louisiana, but the entire Gulf Coast with, like, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, Texas, Louisiana, all of that. So everything from, you know, country music to uh, southern rock and roll, jazz, blues, gospel music, you know, has a big um, presence down there as well. And so a lot of history, musical history uh, in the area that I grew up. So I was exposed to all of that, you know, as a kid, especially because my dad was in radio. And so there was always music playing around the house. And, and he really loved all kinds of different genres of music. So I was exposed to it all. But it was really something about blues music that I connected with as a kid, you know, because the only thing I can... I can really think is that um, as a kid, I wasn't necessarily able to relate to the lyrics or the experience that the guy was singing about. But the only real requirement for legitimately playing blues is that you play it with real emotion and play it from your heart. And I think that no matter what age you are, if somebody's playing music straight from the heart and putting you know, that kind of passion in it, I think anybody can connect with that. And so I believe that I connected with that at a very young age. And so music, uh, blues music really spoke to me. It stood out to me uh, as the one that really caught my attention the most. And so I grew up really researching the blues and going back to the very beginnings of the blues and, and finding out about all the people, you know, who made the music uh, what it is today. And uh, people like Stevie Ray Vaughan, when I first met him when I was seven years old, he changed my life. The way he played guitar, that fire and that passion just was mesmerizing to me. And so I just wanted to learn how to try and play with that kind of intensity and to have that kind of an effect, like, uh, you know, an internal effect on people through my music. And, and I took that with me, like, from that point forward. Um, but, you know, 
it's a, it's a history. It's like a, a tradition in blues for musicians to always give credit where credit is due and, and mention their inspirations and their influences. And so I went back and found out who his influences were and who Jimi Hendrix liked, you know, and uh, even though you get back to B.B. King and find out he loved T-Bone Walker and you just work your way backwards and you find out, you know, you can connect the dots all the way back to the very beginning. It's, I mean, seven is a, is a really young age to be going to gigs and stuff. But was that was your dad taking you to see live music regularly, even as young as that? Yeah. So um, my dad, you know, he did radio, but he also did concert promotion. And so I've been going to concerts. My very first concert, I was three years old. And my dad was the promoter of the show, and he brought Muddy Waters and John Lee Hooker to town. So that was my very first concert ever at age three was Muddy Waters and John Lee Hooker. And in my opinion, uh, that would convert anybody to a lifelong blues fan. Oh, man. You're so lucky growing up. I mean, it's like it's such a rich... uh, um it's always isn't it the ingredients i think you can see you've got it you know your parents obviously influenced you heavily the 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 live music you've been able to go and not just listen to it actually see it um can you what's your earliest memory of of i mean can you even remember that gig at three years old or have you got to go a little bit older till you till you can have that first you know what what was the moment the hairs on the back of your neck stood up and you're watching a guitar player and going wow well for me that was that was that moment with Stevie Ray Vaughan when I saw him right. play. That was mind-blowing to me. And then probably um, the next opportunity or the next uh, situation where that happened was seeing ZZ Top and watching Billy Gibbons play, you know. Um, I don't know. I just I, I remember going to see almost every concert that came through town. And so it was, it was kind of like I, I didn't realize how much of a sponge I was at the time. I was just absorbing all of this stuff. So it wasn't just listening to the music. I was actually going to see these bands play and witness how they put on a show, which also influenced me in my career, you know, watching all these uh, different acts, you know, and how they entertain people and things like that, you know, really had an impact on me when it came to be my opportunity to entertain people. I I know that you're not a sort of a, um, you're self-taught as a player. And of course, you know, when, when you were growing up, there's no YouTube and I guess even things like, you know, VHS video wouldn't have been um, maybe more towards the middle to the end of the 80s. You'd have started to get some VHS video of guitar players. But before then, was, was your only real opportunity to see how someone was playing, to, to be there in the flesh and just try and get as close to the front as you could? It was that and, and the VHS tapes. I remember, <clears throat> I mean, I remember getting my hands on some live video uh, VHS tapes and being able to figure out, like I would always try and sound out a chord by ear and figure out each note. And then, but I was like, something's just not right. But I didn't have, you know, uh, the education musically to know, you know, the different variations of a certain chord. And so I would get a video and then I'd be like, oh my gosh, that's a chord, you know? And then I would figure it out by looking at his hands. And it would be really bummer too, like if the cameraman like switched to a different angle and you missed the opportunity to see the chord because then it was forever gone. Um, but yeah, that was it. I mean, there was no YouTube. There was, you know, there's a lot of tools that are available to people today, which is pretty incredible when it comes to learning guitar. You can just go on YouTube and find just about anything you're looking for. Um, but yeah, for me, it was a real tedious process. One note at a time. Like if I wanted to know a chord, I would have to listen 
to the guy play the chord and then figure out, you know, each individual note. You know, like that versus this. You know, and I'll have to try and find those on the neck and then figure out, well, how does my hand actually play those? And then eventually I'll figure out the right way to fret the chord. Has there, is there any example of that where stylistically you even now you play chords differently or licks differently to how some of your heroes played them because of the fact that it was hard to actually see what was being done you just had to work it out or did you you know do you play I guess is your approach kind of relatively straightforward in terms of how you'd, you'd hit those kind of um, chords and licks well I mean I feel like you know my approach to playing is pretty straightforward based on my experience of how I learned how to play. Um, but you know, what's great about uh, surrounding myself with musicians that I think are uh, at the top of their game um, is that by playing with musicians that have more knowledge than I do about music, I learn things from them. You know, like uh, my bass player is incredibly skilled and knowledge and theory and all this stuff. And so I'm going, hey man, you know, what, what's the next thing here that would go, and you know, he knows, the right answer right off the top of his head, you know, where me, I have to really like spend some time searching for it. So, um, you know, that's, that's a really great thing. It's like, you know, my shortcomings and my learning process, as I've been successful and been able to play with outstanding musicians, I surround myself with people that I think are, you know, great musicians. They obviously help me rise to the occasion, help me sound better, but they also give me knowledge that I didn't otherwise have. Now, did you go straight from, finishing school into a career as a, as a full-time musician, or was there a few years of doing a day job to, to make ends meet? No, so <laughs> I had a job, I had a job in, uh, in school. I had like a, a part-time job, which is part of the school program. So like it was uh, a marketing class where you were required to have a job and work a certain amount of hours each week. So uh, I actually was like a delivery guy for my dad. My dad had a uh, one-hour photo uh, printing service and I would deliver the photos uh, to customers uh, addresses and stuff so that was my that was my real job before uh, at the same time I was playing gigs around town um, but basically you know I recorded that first record Let Better Heights at the end of my senior year in high school so 12th grade I'm going to school Monday Tuesday Wednesday and then after school gets out I'm driving to Memphis Tennessee and we're recording Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then driving back on Sunday. We had the, an arrangement worked out with the school so that I would not fail based on my absences. I, they allowed me to make up my schoolwork during the week. So I completed that record. I graduated high school, and I hit the road and uh, basically never looked back and doing it ever since. Now, that's highly unusual. That is not a normal scenario uh, for most people, um, and, and I recognize that, but Looking back, it was like it was pretty incredible. I feel extremely fortunate. But yes, that's all I've ever known. Basically, is playing music, uh, graduating high school, and, and getting to do it. You know, and uh, and now I'm 43 years old, man. Been doing it almost 30 years, and uh, I, I'd say it's pretty. Uh, uh, to me, I sometimes I even can't believe it. No, it's that's amazing. And at least you've got that knowledge of being a delivery driver, and they are in demand at the moment, especially yeah. this year. So if it all goes to pot, you know you can fall back on that skill. <laughs> um, For sure. Now, your band, you've worked um, closely with Noah Hunt for pretty much all your career. Um, was that a 
is I, I hope you don't mind me sort of asking this. Is that literally that you just don't like your own voice or do you just want to be the guitar player and leave someone else to sing? Or what, what's your what's the reason why you've so, I mean, so many people who make it to the level that you have end up singing and playing guitar in the same, you know, and fronting the band. But you're obviously right. quite comfortable not doing that. And yet, but so what's your... Well, well to, be, to be clear, starting in 2004 uh, on the album The Place You're In, I sang almost the whole record on okay. that record. So that was my fourth. And then right. after that point, I still kind of sang to varying degrees because so I in the beginning let's we'll go back in the very beginning when I did my first record uh there was a lot of pressure on me to sing and to be the lead vocalist but frankly uh when I would open up my mouth my guitar playing everybody made such a big deal about my guitar playing being beyond my years you know I'm this young kid playing yeah. blues music uh with a feel and you know uh, abilities beyond my years right and but when i would open up my mouth and try and sing i sounded like a kid right and and there was no mistaking that you know i didn't have the uh the instrument that like somebody like johnny lang had where he opened his mouth and he, he sounded like he was you know 40 years old or something i didn't have that and so i knew that that was not the voice that i heard from my music and I didn't have a problem. I had a certain standard that I had for my band and my music. And if I was not able to meet that standard, I didn't have a problem finding somebody else that could. Um, so that was for the first album we had a lead singer. I sang one record, one song on that record, and reluctantly, a song called <laughs> Riverside. And then after that, uh, we had one guy that would sing on the first album, and then we parted ways. And then we brought Noah Hunt in for the second album on Trouble Is, and it's the guy you hear on Blue on Black. Yeah. And from that point, I started singing background vocals, you know, and I was fine doing that. I mean, I love to play guitar. That's my first real love when it comes to music. And so I was fine with that. And I still wasn't feeling comfortable enough with my voice to step out front. So 2004 comes along. I wrote an album that was pretty personal to me about a lot of things I'd gone through. And there was a lot of songs about my uh, girl at the time who's now my wife. And I just felt, you know, this is only appropriate, I think, if I sing this stuff. So that was the motivating factor for me to step in front of the microphone at that point. And then I kind of backed off a little bit. Um, but what really kind of kicked it into high gear for me was I have a side band called The Rides with Stephen Stills from Crosby, Stills & Nash. And uh, he was adamant that I sing and that we share the vocal responsibilities when we were making these records. So I would sing half the record, he would sing half the record. And then when I did that every single night on stage on, when we would tour together. And then now it's kind of evolved to where on my most recent albums, on the past several albums, I've seen half the lead vocals on the records and then Noah sings the other half. So we have evolved into a band that now has two lead vocals in the band and what that enables us to do is have a broader range of material that we can um, that we can write record and cover because his voice is completely different than my voice and I think Noah's got one of the greatest voices in blues and rock today for sure um, my voice is completely different than his and so that that gives us an opportunity to do some songs that maybe Noah's voice wouldn't be, be right for and obviously tackle the songs that I can't pull off. So it gives us a lot of flexibility and I have stepped up into that position and I've started to enjoy it. The more I do it, the more I'm enjoying it. Do you, do you, um, 
do you tend to, uh, you know, it, what's the right way of putting this? Are you sort of choosing the, 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 the songs that you want to sing on based on how complex the guitar parts are? Or, or is it very much based on just whose vocal style or range suits the song the best? Well, it's a little bit of both, but primarily it's whose voice um, suits the song the best. And then what happens is, is that if, if I have written a part, because I'm not one of those people that can play, I have to kind of, there's certain th things I can play while I'm singing and there's certain things that I can't do while I'm yeah. singing. So uh, I have to pick and choose. So if the, if the guitar part is too complicated, then in all honesty, I'll, I'll, I will try and either dumb it down a little bit so that I can sing it and play it, or actually what I have really been experimenting with on this newest record, which is yet to be released, uh, we recorded an album right before the pandemic hit. We just finished it up. Um, but I've actually been trying to open up the sound of the band and letting them, if I'm singing the lead vocal, let the band carry the song in the verses mm -hmm. and then have the guitar come in during the choruses. And then that frees me up with the opportunity to really focus on my singing in the verses. And so I'm doing a lot of experimenting and trying to figure out what works best for me. I always, I mean, personally, I, I cannot sing and play guitar at the same time. My brain, it completely can't do, I can't multitask anything actually in fairness, but I certainly can't do that. But I always, you know, I always think when you see guitar players who can appear to be completely separating the two things and doing a great job at both, I do admire that just skill. It's it's um, yeah, incredibly incredibly difficult. But um, tell me about this. Um, you know, obviously you've had a, a, a amazing career, many albums, constantly touring, gigging, toured with some amazing artists, um, and then it all kind of came to a halt earlier this year. How did that affect you, sort of creatively, after sort of you know, twenty five, thirty years of of you know being able to go and do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it to just going, no, 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 that's it now. Yeah. Got to, maybe you can hit the studio in a certain way, but did, did it, did it bring different things out of you creatively or has it been quite a frustrating time? It's, um, for me, it's been really different. I think for some people, man, it gave them that opportunity to really sit at home and woodshed and, I think a lot of people maybe took advantage of the opportunity to start writing the material or whatever. I think everybody's approach to dealing with this has been different. My personal situation is unique in that my wife and I have a very large family and we have six children. And so um, since, we, since I started having children with my wife and we started our family um, years ago, I started uh, to really pay attention to my touring schedule and trying to strike the right balance between my family life and my professional life so that I don't neglect my family and I don't neglect my fans because I have obligations to both. And so I had a thing that was working really well and you know, where I would be out on tour for maybe four or five weeks and then we were at a time and then we would come back, but that was the maximum. Then we would come back home for a week or two and everybody reconnect with their families. Um, and then we go back out again, but we always had an extended break over winter. So for us, you know, like, uh, at the end of November, beginning of December, we come off the road, we're home December, January, and, you know, February. And so I would have, you know, a few months to spend with my family. So I, I have experience being at home for, you know, months at a time, but not this many months at a time. 
And so my attention has really been focused on my family. Um, thankfully, as I mentioned just a minute ago, we recorded a brand new record right at the beginning. Uh, we finished it like right at the, at the beginning of March. And so I realized though that this is not the time to put out a new album of new material. So instead we put out, we just released a live DVD concert. Uh, so it's a CD uh, with the live audio and then also the DVD with the live concert that you can watch at home because that gives people the opportunity to see the Kenny Wayne Shepherd Band in the comfort of their own home right now while we can't play shows. And we're holding on to the new studio album to try and figure out when the right opportunity is that we release albums so we can go play shows for people and bring the new music to them in a live setting. And so it doesn't make sense to release that until we know we can do that again. But for me, it had, I was lucky that I did that record and I already had that record done because in the, uh, in the beginning, I've just been focusing on spending time with my kids, making this count as much as possible, uh, you know, for quality time with them. And frankly, you know, I, don't, I wasn't feeling inspired to write music at the beginning of this because the end game for me is to get up on the stage and play the music for you, you know. So, so that, so it, you, you would say actually that the, yeah, apart from the upside of spending more time with your family, it's been musically quite a frustrating last six or seven months in terms of just... Well, yeah. Yeah, because we, we pride ourselves in being a, a, a great live act, and we built a reputation for many years, and we're road dogs. I mean, that's what we do, man. Like, we live to be on stage and play for the fans, you know? And so it's, it's been really interesting. You never had something just completely taken away. But look, the reality is, is we're not the only ones um, that are going through this. There's a lot of people that are not being allowed to work. There's a lot of people that are, um, you know, having a hard time financially as a result of all this stuff. But a lot of people are just waiting for things to go back to normal. We're not alone in this, right? Uh, but it, it is frustrating. I think there's a lot of musicians because not only is this like what we live to do, I think this also helps musicians stay sane to a degree. This is like our therapy, right? And so I think that, you know, a lot of, uh, some people are probably going a bit stir crazy and not being able to get out there and, you know, experience that. Yeah, I, I, you, you, I think most guys, especially I think musicians that I know over the last six or seven months have really, really found it difficult. And they don't even really know quite why. It's not because they've been ill or because necessarily, I mean, I know there's a lot of hardship out there at the moment, but not necessarily that. I think it's just emotionally this whole, if you've been yeah. so used to having a creative outlet, being able to go and play music, play with your friends, all that kind of stuff, and it gets taken away from you. That's, it's been tough, hasn't it? And, you know, fingers crossed we can hear your new album and you can be back on the road, you know, sometime next year. Um, anyway, we need to nerd out now and talk about gear because that's kind of what we do on this channel. Um, so with no particular place to start, but I'm just trying to think, I'm trying to, in my mind now, I'm trying to see a picture of you playing anything other than a Strat. And I'm sure they exist, but nothing's coming to mind. <laughs> so yeah. can, we, can we talk about your sort of love affair with the Strat and, and any other guitars that maybe you, um, perhaps I should be thinking of a picture of you that I just can't think of at the moment. But, you know, is, has there been any other uh, little love affairs with other styles of guitars over the years? Yeah, I mean, obviously, my first uh, love as an instrument is the Strat. I mean, that's obvious. And um, I mean, so many of my heroes, that's, that's the introduction for most of us, I think, or maybe even for all of us, is that 
somebody you admire uh, is playing that guitar and it's and it has an impression on you that's larger than life, you know. And for me, it was the Strat. It was Jimi Hendrix. It was Stevie Ray Vaughan. It was Eric Clapton, Buddy Guy. I mean, the list goes on and on. Jeff Beck, um, Robert Cray, just so many people. And those are those are more you know rock and blues. But there's so many Strat plays across so many genres that have created so much timeless music. And I would just see it time and time again on stage and the sound that they were getting out of it was the sound that, that I heard, that I wanted to find, that I wanted to um, tap into and relay, you know, through my hands. And so also ergonomically, it's just set up right for me. And I don't know if it's that the guitar is set up right for me or if that I have adapted that much to the guitar uh, over the years, but everything just feels like it's in the right place for the way that I play. I do play the guitars and I mean, I have to be honest with you, like Billy Gibbons, uh, there's a record by uh, ZZ Top called Fandango, and uh, it's half live and half studio recording. But the live stuff on that record, that's the best. If you ask, like, the holy grail of sounds for a Les Paul, that is the album I would have that sound as well. So I do have some Les Pauls, and I have some humbucker guitars and things like that. Um, but the thing is, is like, you know, I, I guess I, because I've been playing this for so long and everything's down here that and my stroke is real broad in my playing when I play rhythm. And a lot of times when I play other guitars the, with the pickup selector up here, I find that I'm accidentally hitting it and then it goes to the position that I don't want it. And so uh, adapting, you know, those habits of playing a strat on other instruments can be a little frustrating for me at times. But there's pictures of me playing Les Pauls, there's pictures of me playing 335s, you know, I've got a lot of other guitars, and I appreciate all of them, but this is definitely, if you know, if I was on a desert island and, you know, only had one guitar, this would be the one that I would grab. Um, and when you when you're playing guitars, was there, um, you know, is there a holy grail of specification from a, you know, from a, a, a 60s Strat or something, or are you... You know, are you playing with modern innovations in terms of, you know, I don't know, pickups and fretboard radiuses and stuff like that? What what would be your, you know, what what's all the inspiration that's gone into the the current, uh, you know, Kenny Wayne Shepherd signature strap? Well, this guitar is heavily inspired, not visually necessarily, but uh, technically inspired by uh, the elements that that are all come together on my 1961 Strat which is like, for me, that's the best playing Strat. Um, I mean, I've played a lot of vintage guitars of all makes and models, um, and I've played a lot of vintage Strats, and just because a guitar is old doesn't mean it sounds great or plays great. I mean, every guitar is is an individual, and uh, they all you know, have their own merits and shortcomings, and so I've played a lot of old Strats that I just didn't like. That one was the one that did it for me. It was the one that I picked up, and in that moment, everything about it was perfect, and it always has, and every, uh, that's the bar for me that all guitars are compared to. So, <clears throat> every guitar that we've tried to create over the years with collaborating with Fender, I've focused a lot of attention on the neck and trying to really get close to duplicating the neck on my 61 Strat. This is the closest that we've ever come. So, uh, we messed with, in the beginning of developing this guitar, the last signature model had a 12-inch radius, so it was a lot flatter and, you know, was supposed to play faster. It had a much thicker neck. But the profile and the tapering and the pocket and all that stuff 
was uh, modeled after my 61, but a completely different playing deck from my 61. It had a similar feel to a degree. This one, <clears throat> we started with a 12 inch and we did a nine and a half. Um, you know, but what I realized was all my custom shop strats, my 61 strat, uh, they're all seven and a quarter vintage spec. And we put the jumbo frets on. And so, and that kind of helps eliminate, you know, issues that you would have with bending. So, I, you know, if I wanted this to be a, a real example of what I play on a regular basis on stage most of the time, we went with a seven and a quarter uh, radius. So, I mean, that's what's on my 61. That's what's on this guitar. But the GravTech saddles, which I put on my 61 strap back when I was like 18 or 19 years old. Um, we start with the output of those pickups on my 61 strap. We measure the output. We try to match that uh, with these pickups, but we fine-tuned them. We made these a little hotter than the last signature guitar, but what's interesting is there's more clarity and there's less hum, uh, even though you get a little more output out of them. And we kind of, you know, increase the response across the entire range. And so they're very responsive to touch and play and dynamics and things like that. Um, and so, you know, those things are like direct takeaways from my 61 Strat. Obviously, you know, I mean, a Strat has a lot of the same features. But the neck, the frets, the output of the pickups, the graph tech saddles, all those things are direct takeaways from my 61 strap. It, it really amuses me that the, you know, in my life playing guitar, which I'm, a, you know, two or three years older than you, but I expect, you know, it's a similar kind of period of time playing. Um, we got told that the seven and a quarter inch radius fretboard was not good. You know, it's just like you couldn't you couldn't bend notes, and you'd, you you know you the, the strings would choke if you were bending above the sort of fifteenth fret. And it's like nine and a half, and then other brands would go flatter and flatter. And then more recently, a couple of famous artists have just gone. Well, I don't know if that's the case, really. I think you know seven and a quarter is kind of fine. And so everybody's now picking up these vintage radius fretboard guitars and going. Yeah, there's really nothing wrong with this. I don't know why we changed it in the first place. Right. And uh, it's crazy, you know, it's, it's a beautiful feeling guitar. Well, uh, what's interesting, I agree with you, but what's interesting is like there's all this, people uh, revere these vintage instruments. Like they put these vintage strats on a pedestal and they're like, oh my gosh, the sound of a vintage, you know, 50s, 60s strat. Well, that's a seven and a quarter radius, right? So. I mean, if you really love those guitars, yeah. that's what you're going to be playing. If you go buy one of them, you throw $30,000 on, on a vintage Strat, you're going to get a seven and a quarter. So, yeah. you know, hopefully you'll like it. Do you, uh, do you obsess a bit with vintage guitars? I mean, I don't know if anybody obsesses quite to the level of someone like Joe Bonamassa, but do you have a, a collection of, um, you know, is that is that sort of, you know, something you could, one of the rooms in your house with like, you know, loads of 50s and 60s strats hanging up? So, I, you know, Joe, uh, Joe and I are good friends and, and I really admire what he's done as far as like the collection that he has uh, created for himself. <clears throat> Part of me wishes that I would have like collected guitars when I was younger. Um, I think everybody wishes yeah. they were cheaper. <laughs> um, but, you know, I never fancied myself to be a collector. Uh, I have a lot of guitars. I've never actually lined them all up and counted them. I'd say I probably have close to 200 guitars, uh, but I don't consider myself to be a collector. I feel like each one really is there to serve a purpose. Um, 
where I think Joe really considers himself to be a custodian of these yeah. guitars. I mean, he plays a lot of them as well, but like he's preserving them. I bought a 1958 Strat uh, back in the 90s. I was out on tour with Van Halen and I went into a guitar center and did an in-store autograph signing. And then I noticed up on the wall was a hardtail three-tone Sunburst 58 Strat brand new guitar. I mean, it was literally the guy, the old man bought it, never played, stuck it under his bed. He passed away. His wife brought it in a guitar center and sold it to them, and then I bought it from them. But it looked brand new. It was a brand new 58 Strat. And then I took it on stage that night, and I started playing it, and literally now that guitar is almost as worn as my 61 Strat is. And I realized in that experience that I'm not the kind of guy that needs to have a bunch of mint condition vintage guitars because I'm really hard on instruments. I play really hard i use a heavy pick and i and i just wear them out and so the collectability is affected <laughs> by that and i just don't think i'm the guy to have all these mint condition things because i'm really rough on my equipment so i think that's part of the reason why i didn't amass a huge collection of vintage guitars as well and where's the um who is who are the block inlays a nod towards i mean is that uh, is that a guitar player that you particularly admire that that had one of those kind of 70s era sort of instruments or is that just something that you like because it's a little different or no no no. so the briefly in 66 and 67 i think fender you know they were uh, experimenting with bound necks uh on strats and a couple of those were made or a few of those were made and then uh, there was a few guitars that made it out of the factory with block inlays and bound necks as well so this was kind of a nod to like we we try to bring a lot of elements uh, together that have been features of Stratocasters over the years, but not necessarily found their way all together in one production model, right? But we didn't want to go, at the same time, it's like it all had to make sense. It had to visually be striking, but also cohesive, right? Like I knew the block inlays would probably get some pushback from some purists, you know, some old guys that think that only, you know, dots are the only thing you should ever see on a Strat. And I can dig that. I respect that. Um, but for me, I wanted, when people see this guitar, I want them to know it immediately that it's something different. And uh, and this is not, we're not going outside the box to something that's never been done on a Strat before here. So the one thing that we did do is we split the 12th fret. And then um, this is actually one of the prototype models. Um, so this was prior to adding another marker up here uh, to make it more symmetrical to my eye. But, you know, we did a matching headstock. Uh, we went and put the signature back on the front of the guitar like the original signature series were done uh, when they first started doing them. Um, you know, so these are all elements. Uh, and, and it's functional, by the way. It's not just aesthetic. It's functional. Like the, the binding and the block inlays make, make it a lot easier to keep track of where you're at on the neck, especially in, in dimly lit or darker situations on stage. So... There is a functional purpose behind it all as well. No, I, I, I think it's a beautiful looking guitar. I think I was saying just before we started rolling, you cannot get them for love nor money over here. It's as, as fast as they arrive. Uh, they're gone. I know uh, it's frustrating. We ha there, was, there was one over here that we had lined up for the interview. I had it with me two days ago. It was earmarked for this 
video, like, do not sell this before the video. And like five minutes later, I'm going, where's that guitar gone? And it's like, oh, we just sold it to this dude. So I'm like, no, no, I need it for the interview. But it's like, oh man, you, it's, but it's super popular. I love, I think it's a great spec guitar. It looks beautiful. I'm a, I'm a fan of, even down to the nitro finish, I think that's a, you know, there's always something, you know, when you're looking for that last half a percent and you don't really know what it is, quite often you just end up going, maybe it's the finish. And I'm, I'm sure some of that contributes to the, to the way it feels and sounds. Yeah, and the ash body, you know, so like we experimented with alder. This particular model is, uh, this is the, one of the prototypes, this is an alder finish. And so what, what I realized was is that there's not enough grain that pops through on alder for you to really be able to fully appreciate the translucent color. So we wanted a, a one-of-a-kind color for this guitar as well. So we took a factory color, which was the sonic blue, and created a custom color out of it. And, you know, so it's translucent sonic blue. But to fully be able to appreciate that, you need to be able to see the wood grain. And all those awesome guitars, those Fender guitars, the Mary Kay models, the early 50s strats, you know, the two-tone sunburst with all that awesome grain, those are all ash bodies. So we, we knew that we needed to go with an ash body to really fully appreciate the color of this guitar. But sometimes ash can be heavy. And uh, so we decided we would do the chambered uh, version, which the minute you pick the guitar, you're like, oh my gosh, this guitar is so light. It immediately leaves an impression on you the moment you pick it up. Uh, but it's more resonant. It really projects acoustically. Um, and it gives it a pretty cool sound. And to me, to my ear, there's not a lot of difference between the sound of an older body and an ash body. I think you really come down, you're splitting a lot of hairs, especially when you're playing an electric instrument through an amplifier that, you know, and if you have pedals, it's like there's so many different things that are affecting the sound of your guitar. You're kind of splitting hairs. And I thought it was more visually appropriate, uh, you know, to have that ash body so you can fully appreciate the color. Well, um, congratulations with what you and, and the guys at Fender have come up with there. It's, it's, you know, difficult to take an instrument that's in its seventh decade now and bring something new to the party again. But I, I do, I think it's visually very, very distinctive and it's a, it's a great sounding and playing guitar. So well done on that front. Um, you, we, we should talk, you mentioned, you mentioned about, you know, the, the plugging into pedals and amplifiers and stuff. Has that changed very much for you in your career or are you still finding you're plugging into the same amps and using the same pedals as you were at the start? I mean, it hasn't, you know, I, I try a lot of new things and, you know, people will send me things to try out. And I mean, I like that people are continuing to try and innovate, but at the same time, a lot of what's happened recently in the guitar world is that we have, you know, 15 different versions of the same pedal, just in different colors. <laughs> and a lot of times we're just trying to reinvent the wheel, you know. Um, I don't know how many different Tube Screamer variants we actually need. Like there's a Tube Screamer for a reason. You can go get a Tube Screamer if you want a Tube Screamer. So um, at a certain point I go, yeah, I don't need to try like the 78th version of the TS-808. You know, I got mine, I have an original, I have a couple of original ones, I have some reissues, I have some modified ones, I'm good on those. Um, but I also, you know, have found that over the years, I found kind of what works for me, and I haven't really had felt the need to go too far beyond that either. What I have tried to do is to find more roadworthy components and reliable um, effects that also get the, the authentic sound. So. The biggest challenge was the Univibe. So I have several original Univibes 
Um, one of them allegedly belonged to Jimi Hendrix himself. And but those things are are uh, fundamentally fragile items, mm. right? If they get banged around too much, they break very quickly. So, um, but there's a lot of different univibe pedals on the market, and and, and amazingly enough, my guitar tech actually makes what I believe is one of the most authentic univibe, uh, you know, replicas or whatever you want to call it. It's like you know, it, it's down to the to the light bulb and everything. He's got it down to a science, but it's roadworthy and it's in a more compact housing. And so that thing gets banged around constantly on the road. I don't have to worry about it breaking. It doesn't break. I don't have to worry about my original having to be repaired. So just trying to find authentic versions of the original pedals that are more durable has really been what's on my radar. The biggest investment in my tone that I've made in recent years has been in amplifiers. And uh, I got hooked up with Alexander Dumble, uh, I guess probably, I don't know, 11 years ago or something like that, maybe a little longer, and started, you know, different amps with him and, and it's just taken my tone and my playing and, and to a different level, and it's really inspired me, you know, because it frees you up when you have an amplifier that responds to your playing exactly the way you want it to. It frees you up to explore new ideas and go into new directions because you're not having to try so hard to, to coax something out of the instrument. It's just happening on its own intuitively. And so that's been a game changer for me as they've been the amplifier. That's... Um... That is some exclusive club if you're in the Alexander Dumble Club. It's like, is, is everything true that you hear about how um, choosy he is about artists that he wants to work with and the, and, the, and the lengths that he will go in to design amps that he feels that fits your playing style and stuff? So I can only speak to my own experience with him, right? Like I can't speak to anybody else's or any rumors or anything like that about him. I can only tell you from my experience, he's one of the nicest people that I know. Uh, and he is, in my opinion, a bonafide genius, uh, when, especially when it comes to electronics and things like that. But his knowledge goes way beyond that. Like he, he's talked to me about all kinds of things that I'm like, how does this guy know this stuff? <laughs> And uh, anyway, so, and the links that he goes to, yes, he goes very far. Um, and, you know, he, he builds these amps. It's like a tailor-made suit, you know. Um, I mean, he really sits there and listens to, to me play the guitar, and he intuitively knows what I'm trying to get the amp to do. And I think then he rolls his sleeves up and goes to work. And the next thing you know, uh, I'm showing back up when he says it's time to come plug into the amp and then I'm plugging into an amplifier that does everything that I could ever hope for it to do based around my style of playing and the way my attack and the way that I'm trying to get the amplifiers to respond. Uh, I, I would love to meet him. I mean, I've, I've, you know, do you hear so many, um, I think it's like everybody, the, the, the myth is probably, as you, as you say, the myth is probably more outrageous than the, than the reality, but he just sounds, He's been such an influential person in terms of great guitar tone. The number of great guitar players that you know that that put such a big part of their tone down to his amp designs. Um, well, a lot of people, a lot of people, um, you know, one of the things that his amplifiers do is they're very revealing about mm -hmm. your playing, right? Um, like every little nuance, and and uh, as a result, every little mistake that you might make <laughs> is revealed. And so if you're the kind of guy that, you know, um, I mean, 
if you want to know where you're at with your accuracy and your technique and all that stuff, plug right into one of his amps and you'll find out everything you need to know. And for if they like it and it works for them and it helps them, you know, with their playing and stuff. But I think some people are, you know, maybe that's not what they're looking for. But the hype is there for a reason. The, you don't get that kind of a reputation because it's snake oil. You just don't. Like, it does not happen. Mm. Like, it's the real deal. And for me, it's been a game changer. Oh, that's cool, man. Well, that's, that's amazing. And I, I guess, I guess if, you've, if you've gone to that length to achieve an amp with that amount of dynamics, or not just an amp, but a rig with that amount of dynamics, I'm guessing for you, you'll, you'll be like one of the last people on the planet that will go digital with regards to, you know, trying to recreate your guitar tone, right? Oh no no no! That's never that. Was, that's not my style. I mean, that's that stuff is cool for like you know if I'm like uh, if I need something portable, you know, I have this little you know modeling thing that I can carry around. I just plug in in a hotel room or something like that. But never, uh, you're never going to see me try and like create a, a a copy of one of my amps and then be using that on stage. Well, good for you, man. Keeping it keeping the tubes alive. Um, well, look, I, I think we're kind of reaching the end of this interview. It's been a, a real pleasure to talk to you. Um, really excited to hear the new album. Is that? Do you have a release date for the the album yet? No, right now, like I said, all of our efforts are really focused on you know the live DVD the live concert. One. And again, I'm just I, I I can't really nail down a date until somebody can tell us when we can actually go back out on the road because you know we put this record out. I want people, you know, to be able to get it and listen yeah. to it. I want them to be able to come see us play it. I want to come over there to the UK and Europe and be able to step on stage and play these songs for people. So that's all uh, a key part of the process for me. So that remains to be seen. Well, okay. Well, let us know, you know, when that does come out. I'll keep an eye on the website and see when it comes out because I'd like to hear that. And right. um, yeah, really looking forward to seeing you touring again. Good luck with the guitar. Um, yeah, enjoy spending more time with your your, your wife and kids it's a, probably yeah, a one one in a lifetime opportunity to be at home for this long for sure and right. uh, yeah and good luck hanging your pictures up and settling in in your new home so thank you but look a pleasure to talk to you thanks for spending the time with us and everybody Kenny Wayne Shepherd woo yes. thanks a lot man take care see you soon thanks. thanks for listening to our latest podcast if you enjoyed it hit that subscribe button see you next time <laughs>